Flourish, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health topics most of us are wondering about, but very few of us are talking about. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch. I'm Heather, your host, as always. And this episode is 10 Health Concerns After Baby. And the inspiration or the idea for this episode came to me after I had my second little one. And after several of my friends and family members were coming to me with certain questions, and then also the conditions and questions my patients have in the office. So I do internal medicine and women's health. I don't do OBGYN. So many of these health concerns extend past the six weeks after your delivery. So these are really important to know so that you can keep an eye out and so that you can just be educated and advocate for yourself if you think you are developing any of these conditions. The way I'm going to structure this is I'm going to start with the most common and kind of go down to more rare medical conditions. The last one is a doozy, so wait for that. So let's start with one that you've probably heard of and have already discussed with your doctor or the pediatrician, which is postpartum depression slash postpartum anxiety. So there's a difference between the post-baby blues and postpartum depression. So the postpartum blues is just kind of not feeling great, feeling tired, feeling, you know, a little on edge. Those are normal because you just had a baby and you're not sleeping anymore. But when this becomes depression is when you have something called anhedonia. That means you don't find joy in anything. You're really, really down. You see your baby smile or maybe your partner smile and it doesn't bring you joy. You may find that you're crying a lot, you're very tearful, you find that you might have trouble concentrating, and you simply just don't feel really anything. You feel so down and depressed that you don't feel much. Severe postpartum anxiety is also very common, and I see this a lot. It's really when you have a very high level of anxiety where it's causing inability to sleep, Perhaps it's causing you to worry so much. Perhaps you're having obsessive compulsive thoughts where you're thinking the same things over and over again, or perhaps you're so anxious to go back to work or have your partner go back to work that you're really freezing up over this. So these are pretty common. In fact, postpartum depression and or postpartum anxiety occur in about 10 to 15% of women after they deliver their baby. So again, there is an increasing awareness, which is excellent, but I feel there is still some mental health stigma. It's not uncommon that I have women come to me in the office and describe a lot of these symptoms. They're scoring very high on depression or anxiety scores, but then they proceed to say, no, no, I'm going to be okay. This is, I'm sure, ending soon. And even themselves, I feel they're a little hesitant to call it postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. So what are your treatment options? I want to get into this. So the first thing you can do is seek out a counselor or a psychiatrist for cognitive behavioral therapy, or a CBT for short. And cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty much what it sounds like. You're going to sit and talk with the doctor or the psychologist to get to the root of what's making you feel so anxious or down or depressed. Now, a lot of people say, isn't it just hormones? And won't that kind of go away over time? And while it is true that the changing hormone level definitely has to do with the mood that you're having, I wouldn't solely place the blame on that and just wait for it to kind of clear up on its own because it may not, or it may take a really long time. So if you do need to get back to work, or if you're going to be the sole provider for your children, you don't simply want to be just waiting for your hormones to sort of become a little bit more balanced. You want to be more proactive in getting yourself good treatment. 
If you're very depressed, the risks of this are that you and your baby aren't going to be bonding very well. Perhaps you're smiling at him or her less, and that might affect his or her development as well. So it's not just affecting you, but it's going to affect you and your family, as well as your partner who might be having some trouble trying to help you kind of move out of your depression or anxiety and not really know how to handle it best. If you've done cognitive behavioral therapy or perhaps you unfortunately don't have time or in the worst case funds to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you can consider starting on a low dose antidepressant. That would be an SSRI. SSRIs stand for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, and common ones that you may have heard of are Lexapro, Paroxetine, Citalopram, Zoloft, there's more out there. Now, they all sort of work the same to increase the serotonin or that happy neurotransmitter in your brain. And while there is some stigma around mental health disorders, there's also a stigma around those types of medications. So many of my patients are afraid to start on them. They'll say, I heard they're addictive, or I hear every American is on them, and I'm not that bad. And, you know, I just want to say, if you are really in need of one of these medications, they simply do help. And the risks of not bonding with your baby or not feeling like yourself or harming yourself or others is so high that it makes the risks of these medications very, very small overall. Now, they don't really have long-term complications that we know of, and I will say the most commonly used medication in the United States is statin or cholesterol-lowering medications, which many Americans find that it's really hard to come off of those. I don't find that my patients have trouble coming off their SSRIs if and when they're ready and they feel better too, but there is a lot of media fear and frenzy around SSRIs. If it does seem to you like this might help, please do not hesitate to try one because this might really improve your mood and really help you succeed and thrive in your life. Another option is potentially local support groups that your internist or pediatrician or gynecologist might know about. So take advantage of those because meeting up with other people and talking in a small group may have a lot of benefits for you. So let's go to number two, and this ties into number one, which is insomnia. Insomnia is one that even I struggled with very much. And the reason that we have trouble falling asleep, even though we are so tired, is that we are overtired. And when you're overtired, your cortisol, your stress hormone, it rises sharply. And when you have high levels of cortisol floating around and you try to go to sleep, it is nearly impossible. And this is sort of what starts that cycle of insomnia. So a really good example of this is residency, you know, or if you had a job where you had to stay up overnight or for 24 hours, you know what I'm talking about. So you're up, you're busy, you're, you know, trying to save people's lives or etc. And you come home and you're so full of adrenaline that cortisol is so high that when you lay down to go to sleep, it's really impossible. So we're going to start with things that you can do to treat this. And the first sort of set is going to be sleep hygiene tips. Now, when I go through sleep hygiene tips and you've just had a baby, some of these are impossible. So I'm aware of that, but let's just do the sleep hygiene anyways, because if you suffer from insomnia and other times during your life, these tips might help. 
Good sleep hygiene is keep your room as dark and as cold as anyone in the house will let you. So invest in some blackout curtains, keep your room really, really dark. And I recommend keeping the temperature below 65 degrees. In fact, you're going to sleep better if it's dark and it's cold. You want to try to go to bed and wake up the same time every day, even on the weekends. Now, this one's nearly impossible if you have an infant in your house, but try to keep a routine or a schedule. This is also good for toddlers and young children. Schedule, schedule, schedule. Make sure you do not have a TV in your bedroom. If you do, I highly encourage you to consider moving the TV. Study after study has shown that if you have a television in your room, it's really going to affect your sleep quality. You want to use your bed for sleep and sex only. So what I mean by that is don't bring your laptop or do your bills in bed, which, you know, a lot of us do do. And consider if you don't already a nice bedtime routine. So that could be a nice bath or a shower, applying some nice lavender lotion or whatever you like just to kind of get you feeling a little sleepy. All right. So if you have an infant in your house, those are really hard to do. So if those aren't working, there's a couple over-the-counter options I highly recommend. My personal favorite is magnesium. Magnesium is an electrolyte we tend to all be just slightly low in. So I always recommend magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate 250 or 500 milligrams and take that right before bed because that might help you just kind of feel a little sleepy. If you develop some diarrhea, back down your dose. Another thing that you can try is melatonin, and you want to take that one to two hours before you kind of plan on going to sleep because that will sort of set in a little bit slower. And speaking of melatonin, infant's melatonin sets in around six weeks. So if your little one is not understanding day-night transition until then, that's really normal. Now, other Sleeping aids such as benzos or benzo-like substances like Ambien are really addictive. So I really highly recommend not using any of those because they're CNS depressants. They kind of put your brain to sleep and it really doesn't teach you how to get yourself feeling sleepy and fall asleep. And then you become addicted to them and you need them to fall asleep. A non-addictive medication that I often prescribe is trazodone, and this is not a benzo-like substance, and it can help you if you've tried the -the over-the-counters and they're simply not working. All right, moving on to number three is mastitis. Mastitis you've also probably heard of, and this is an infection in the breast tissue. Now, mastitis often arises when you have stasis in the breast, meaning, uh, for example, there's milk that's been in there for a long time that isn't able to be expressed. So, for example, you fell asleep for 12 hours, or your infant is having trouble feeding, or perhaps you're weaning very quickly. These can all be reasons why you have stasis of that milk in the breast. So when that milk is sitting there, it's causing a lot of pressure, and then the bacteria, which naturally occur in breast milk, start to kind of reproduce and, you know, you get an infection. So signs are going to be extremely tender to touch, red, hot, swollen. Now, the way you want to start treating these at home is actually with supportive treatment. So this is going to be non-steroidals like Motrin or Advil, and you're going to want to do cold compresses where you just put a cold washcloth on your breast. And you actually want to continue to express the milk, so you want to either be pumping or breastfeeding through the mastitis. 
Now, if it becomes where you think you need medical attention, you're having fevers or it's so tender, your doctor might put you on an antibiotic and common antibiotics are going to be Keflex or Clindamycin. And if it's extremely severe, something like Vancomycin is going to help treat the mastitis. So make sure if you have a red tender, swollen breast, a high fever, start with some non-steroidals at home, call your doctor, and make sure you're continuing to express the breast milk because if it continues to stay in the breast, that's going to worsen the mastitis. The next two common conditions after baby are both pelvic floor conditions. So the first is dyspareunia, that's the medical term for painful intercourse. So this happens in about 8% of women after they have their baby. And when it becomes a, you know, concern is if this extends 6 to 12 months after delivery. So it's not uncommon that maybe the first time you have intercourse, there's a little bit of discomfort or pain. But what I am talking about is when this is persisting several months afterwards, Now, your risk for this increases if you had a large or severe laceration, if you had an episiotomy, or if you had a operative vaginal delivery. That means your baby was delivered with the help of forceps or a vacuum. Those all really increase the tear and the healing process, which can, of course, cause some painful intercourse when you resume that. So patients feel very embarrassed or uncomfortable talking to their doctor about this. And if it's persisting many months out, you may be seeing your internist. One of the best treatment options is pelvic floor physical therapy. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's physical therapy for the pelvic floor. So a lot of my patients look at me with one eyebrow raised and it can be a very uh, daunting or sort of a very um, exposed type of physical therapy, but I can really assure you that anyone who is a pelvic floor physical therapist is highly skilled and trained and is going to walk you through this process so that you come out having significant improvements in this. They oftentimes also teach you some exercises that you can do at home, and that's great because then you can continue doing this for months and years later and always have a really strong pelvic floor. There's also other options such as local compounded treatment, which can decrease the pain during intercourse. So common medications used are gabapentin or lidocaine, which help to numb up the area. And you can either use these before intercourse or maybe once or twice a day to help the healing process. And lastly, you can have a revision surgery, and you're going to want to speak with a highly skilled gynecologist who will go over the risks and benefits of having a surgical procedure. Another common pelvic floor issue after baby is stress or urgent incontinence. So let me help you understand the difference between the two. Stress incontinence is when you leak urine, if you sneeze, cough, or jump, you you put pressure on that pelvic floor and you leak a little bit of urine. Now, I'll disclose, this happened to me shortly after my second baby when I was jumping rope and I started leaking a little bit of urine. It's really embarrassing and frustrating, but it's very, very common. Now, urgent incontinence is the gotta go, gotta go, but you can't get to the bathroom fast enough so you may have a little dribble or a leak or have an accident on the way. Now, all women have a hole in our pelvic floor, and after childbirth, if you especially had a traumatic childbirth with a forceps or a vacuum delivery, 
And maybe then you throw in something like menopause where you have the loss of estrogen and that connective tissue is much weaker over time. Say you haven't been doing your Kegel exercises like you know you're supposed to be doing. Those all weaken the pelvic floor muscle over time. And when you don't use it, you lose it just like, you know, your bicep muscles. So those Kegel exercises will help you from having stress incontinence that persists after a baby well into the rest of your life. But these are both very common, and you will want to seek out help with a urogynecologist who is a gynecologist who specializes in leaky bladders if this is persisting several months afterwards. And please bring it up with your doctor because it's not that after a baby you just simply leak urine. It's really something that can be treated. So bring it up so that your doctor can get you to the right person. And before I move on, there is also a fecal incontinence that can happen. So it's, it's just like the urine leaking, although it's stool. So if you are, you know, out running and you come home and you notice you're having some fecal incontinence, it's really distressing. But again, there is options that you can do. There is non-invasive options like therapy. And then there's more invasive procedures like a surgery. But if you never bring it up to somebody, it can get worse. And I want to assure you it's very common. So moving on to some more rare conditions that can happen after baby. The next thing I see in my internal medicine office is postpartum thyroiditis. And this is a condition of the thyroid that affects about 7 to 8% of women after they've had their baby. Now, the risk of this is a little bit higher if you have other autoimmune conditions, such as type 1 diabetes, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, lupus, and others. It can present either as hypothyroidism, and hypothyroidism is that sort of slow and sluggish and gaining weight and cold intolerance. Or it can present as hyperthyroidism, and hyperthyroidism is the opposite. You might be having palpitations, increased energy, insomnia. And so it can present as either hypo or hyperthyroidism. Now, we treat this sort of by watching and waiting. And we want to see if this is going to be transient, meaning it's just going to kind of clear on its own. And oftentimes it does. And so we won't really give you medication. We'll just watch and wait and see. Now, this can be distressing because you're thinking, why isn't my doctor doing anything? But the right treatment is to just see if it goes away on its own. And if it persists for 6 to 12 months, then we will start treating you with the same type of medications we will if you have hyper or hypothyroidism. You may need to see an endocrinologist or your internist may feel comfortable prescribing these medications for you. And oftentimes, you may be able to get off these medications in several months or years. So you want to have someone who's going to follow you for those. And your doctor should be checking your thyroid function tests every four to six weeks. And if they start to normalize, they can kind of go out, space that out a little bit more. Now, moving on to another condition that is very life-threatening is preeclampsia, or sometimes called toxemia of pregnancy. Most women know this can be a condition that can arise during pregnancy, but I want you to know that 5% of preeclampsia is diagnosed postpartum, so the first six weeks after you've had your baby. It's really severe because it's a multi-system disorder, which means that it affects many of the vital organs, so your heart, your liver, your kidneys, and your brain. 
And symptoms of this that you might notice at home are going to be rising blood pressure, which you won't know unless you're actually taking your blood pressure at home. So if you have a blood pressure cuff, it's not a bad idea to get a couple of blood pressures when you're home. You might also develop other symptoms like headaches that are uncommon for you, visual changes or some blurry vision, some right upper quadrant pain, so pain over where your liver is, some chest pain, and some swelling in your legs. Maybe you have altered mental status, which you might not know, but your partner might know. That just means you're not acting like yourself. Those are all signs and symptoms that you might notice when you're at home. A spin-offs of preeclampsia is eclampsia, and eclampsia is when you start to develop seizures, and this is when you don't have a prior history of a neurological condition or you don't have a history of seizures. So this is a very severe and HELP syndrome, this is going to be a, a mouthful of scientific words, but that stands for hemolysis, elevated liver function tests, and low platelets. And what that means is your liver and your red blood cells are starting to decompensate. So you definitely want to seek out medical attention. In fact, you may be sent to the emergency room and you may even be admitted for this. Now, treatment is going to be first and foremost to bring that blood pressure down. So with the use of antihypertensives and oftentimes magnesium as well, this is going to prevent neurological conditions such as seizures and etc. Now, there are some risk factors for preeclampsia. If you've had a prior preeclampsia episode, that can put you at risk for another one. If you have pregestational diabetes, if you have chronic high blood pressure, if you are obese, if you have a family history of preeclampsia, or if you have multiple gestations, twins, or triplets, these can increase your risk for preeclampsia. Now, as an internist, I always like to get a very good gestational history from my patients because if you have had preeclampsia during a pregnancy or postpartum, this kind of puts you at increased risk for some other connective or vascular conditions later on in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, such as high blood pressure or others. So make sure you also tell your internist if you had a history of preeclampsia because that might put you at slightly higher risk and your doctor is going to want to keep a really good watch on your blood pressure and other cardiovascular markers like your cholesterol and perhaps if you're developing diabetes, your A1C. So another very life-threatening condition postpartum is a blood clot. And in fact, a blood clot that breaks off and goes into the lungs that causes a pulmonary embolism is the most common cause of maternal death in developed countries. It is more common postpartum than during pregnancy, and this risk is even higher if you had a C-section. The risk also increases if you have a past history of a blood clot, if you are obese and if you're a smoker, or if you have autoimmune conditions such as lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, those all increase your risk for a blood clot. Now, the risk is highest initially after delivery, and then it goes down by about 12 weeks after delivery to your normal risk. So signs of a blood clot are going to be a red, hot, swollen, tender leg, and often this is in the calf area, but it can be anywhere else. And you're going to want to call your doctor immediately who may want to check some lab work such as a D-dimer and perhaps do a ultrasound to make sure that you don't have a blood clot. Now, the blood clot itself is dangerous when it breaks off and goes to your lungs because that can cause an immediate death. When you have a clot in your lungs, signs of that would be extreme shortness of breath or an inability to feel like you can take a full deep breath. 
You may have a low oxygen saturation, which you're going to need to have checked at the doctor's office. And you may be having a racing heart or have heart palpitations, or you may otherwise just not feel like something is right. So whenever you have that sixth sense that something is really off, please always seek medical attention. If you do have or develop a blood clot, you will be placed on blood thinners. And if you had a prior history of blood clot, it's most likely that during your pregnancy, you'll be placed on a blood thinner to prevent another clot during your second pregnancy or postpartum. Now, another rare condition that can develop is cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy is a fancy word for heart failure. And if you've developed postpartum cardiomyopathy, most likely you're also seeing a cardiologist. Now, you're going to be placed on heart failure medications that are very similar to those that we use with heart failure, and they're going to help to improve the ejection fraction. Now, ejection fraction is a fancy word for how much blood is pumped out of your heart with every heartbeat, and a normal ejection fraction is about 50%, and when it's reduced, that's anywhere between 45 to down to 35 to even down to less than 25, which is pretty severe. And the medications that you're placed on are going to help to improve that ejection fraction over time. And most likely your cardiologist will be following you with heart ultrasounds where they can measure that ejection fraction. You may also be doing some monitored exercise programs and you may also be very closely watching your weight and symptoms such as any fluid in your legs or shortness of breath. It's pretty common that cardiomyopathy can resolve over time, but it can also be lifelong or persistent. And so having a good cardiologist and internist follow you with this over time is really vital. And the last condition that can arise after baby is another baby. So pregnancy can happen after you have a baby, even if you're breastfeeding and especially if you're not breastfeeding. So if you're not going to breastfeed, you may resume ovulating within 25 days after your baby was born. And if you are breastfeeding in about 5% of breastfeeding women who aren't using contraception, they can get pregnant. So this is why as you're in the hospital, your doctors may be asking you about your postpartum plan for contraception. Now, the most common answer is abstinence, meaning women say, trust me, I am not having intercourse anytime soon. And while that may be the case, when you get home after you start feeling better, you may want to have intercourse and you might want to have a plan for when that happens. That's why we always want to ask you before you leave the hospital. So I have a whole podcast on birth control options. So you can take a listen to that if you're not sure what's going to be the best option for you. Now for moms who are going to be breastfeeding, we tend to shy away from estrogen containing birth control options, which will be the estrogen progesterone birth control pills, the patches, or the NuvaRing. And the reason we do that is because there's some evidence to show that estrogen can decrease your breast milk supply. Although I think the evidence is still not very strong. So if you think that's going to be the best option for you while you're breastfeeding, have a conversation with your doctor about that in the office. 
There is, of course, the intrauterine devices, the progesterone releasing, and then the copper IUD, which is the Paragard, which are the most effective forms of birth control, along with the Nexplanon, which is a subcutaneous rod that goes underneath your bicep muscle in your arm. So you do want to have a plan because you can get pregnant as soon as the next month after you've had your baby. So this concludes the 10 health concerns after baby. It is by no means extensive, meaning there is more things that can happen after pregnancy. It's just the 10 that I see the most and that tend to be the most common and also some life-threatening conditions that you want to make sure you're well aware of. Make sure you are proactive and call your doctor if you develop any of these signs or symptoms. Postpartum can be a time that's very busy. It's filled with pediatrician appointments, going back to see your OBGYN, and you've got lots of things to do, including filling out paperwork or maybe doing baby photos. And it's not as relaxing as maybe you thought it might be. So it's a time where you may neglect in some sense your own health, especially because you're now taking care of your little one. But if you don't stay healthy, your family and your little one won't be able to stay healthy either. So you really want to keep these on your radar so that you and your family have the best postpartum experience that you can. Please feel free to message me or send me a comment if I didn't explain something thoroughly or if you still have some lingering questions. I hope that I have answered some questions you may have had or shed some light on some new conditions that you weren't thinking about. So thank you so much for listening in. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. And I hope you got a lot out of spending this half an hour with me. Thank you again so much. Bye.